Hey there, welcome back to the You and Lewis podcast, Right Turns Project, episode two. As I mentioned in the first episode, I've been fortunate to come across people who come to pivotal points in their lives, choose radical honesty and transparency, and turn inwards for introspection and insight. This is what I refer to as a right turn. Inevitably, this leads to a deep change in their path and in turn their lives. In each episode, we sit down to discuss their deeply compelling stories to find out what caused this change, what the effects were on them and those close to them, and where it's leading them. The hope is that their experiences, stories, and courage will inspire and motivate you on your own journey. This conversation is with Matthew Forbes. How does someone with extreme social anxiety learn to become a person who faces his fears head-on and embraces others openly into his tribe? Find out in my conversation with Matthew. Despite crippling anxiety that developed into agoraphobia in his last year of high school, forcing him to drop out, Matthew went on in life to work as a Toronto cab driver, a TV show host, a mail carrier, a barista, and many other extroverted occupations both in Canada and abroad. He's a loving husband and a father and a friend to many fortunate individuals. Listen in as we explore how he developed and then learned to cope with anxiety and a fear factor that has followed him his entire life. In my time with him, he shared many stories that were both intriguing and at times extremely humorous. His eventual decision to open Matthew's barbershop took all his courage and most of his savings. But the concept is about so much more than just cutting hair. It's about connecting community and helping others transform. Our conversation was held in his barbershop just when the city workers decided to saw up the street in front of his store. I've done my best to get rid of as much of that noise as possible, but if you hear something that resembles a mosquito in your ear, that's probably it. Okay, let's get started. Okay, I think we're recording now. Well, thanks a lot for having me. Well, thanks for asking me. Yeah, thanks for taking the time on the, on your day off, or your semi-day off, yeah. your cleaning day. Yeah, errand day. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, no problem. My, my pleasure. Well, you're a person um, that I've actually been wanting to get to know for a while. So it's hard when you're a self-employed and you have kids and a business, as you know. When you're self-employed and I'm self-employed. Yeah, yeah to, to just yeah. kind of sit down and, and talk with somebody. Yeah. But uh, but thanks a lot for taking the time. Sure. So um, again, I was explaining this a little earlier, but the whole purpose of this project is to really is to help people who may be out there in a nine to five job or doing something, you know, doing the grind and they hate it, mm-hmm. and they think they may know what they want to do or they want to explore something else, but they may not have the courage or they don't know how to do it. Um, so I really want to be able to interview people who have kind of gone through that too and may or may not be at the end of their, well, we're never at the end of our No, path. I was going to say, there's no end. Right. <laughs> but at a certain point where they are feeling like they're on the right path. Right. I would have to say that that is me. Yeah. 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 Gratefully. Yeah. So now you, I mean, you're here in downtown Guelph. You've opened up a 
a comfortably sized barbershop. <laughs> like 200 square feet. Yeah. Yeah. But it seems to be, it seems to be right, right now for you. Yep. And you have hats on the wall and mm-hmm. your wife's artwork on the wall and yep. a lot of things going on here. Yep. But before we get into like how you decided upon being a barber and opening up a barbershop, I kind of want to unpack it a little bit. Sure. Um, when kind of going back to when you were younger. Mm-hmm. So when you were really young, growing up, like yep. where did you grow up? I was born in Stratford, uh, lived in Tavistock for a year and a half, I think, and then moved to Toronto, uh, the Forest Hill area before it was Forest Hill in quotation marks. And, um, so Mount Pleasant and Lawrence in Toronto. And then, so Forest Hill, like for people who may not know the area. So Forest Hill is like, these days, it's multi-million dollar homes on multi-million dollar streets. Yeah, it's very, it's it's upscale. But then, you know, you can say that about a lot of parts of Toronto too that never, like Toronto, to my mind, used to have um, a lot more uh, authentic character. Now it's sort of unattainable for a lot of people. But anyway, I grew up in a neighborhood that was a, re- was a neighborhood. It was a guy who made donuts. And, and he in his, his garage, I think, and he would sell them out of his truck. And we were—I was a kid, and I was running around. And there was the bad boys who lived across the street. We didn't—I didn't—I never knew their names, but they were called the bad boys, you know. And really? They did like one of them was like—I remember one time he was in my backyard. And he had lady fingers, you know, those firecrackers called lady fingers. And yeah. he put them between each of his fingers, and he lit them, <laughs> and they went off, and they like ripped his fingers apart. That's crazy. And he ran home screaming. This is the strangest thing. Yeah. And anyway, yeah. So we were, but I was only there for maybe two and a half years. Uh, it was my grandmother and grandfather's house. They lived around the corner. And then um, my mother was remarried and moved to Scarborough. And that's, that's the whole other thing. Scarborough. So you, your parents split up at that time? Yeah. Or? So my parents split when I was like one. Yep. In Stratford. Oh, wow. Yeah. So me and my older brother moved to that house in in uh, Forest Hill, Mount Pleasant Lawrence. Maybe it's not even called Forest Hill, but that's what I've always known it as. Um, because my grandparents had that house. It was around the corner. They bought it as an investment, I suppose, and there until my mother met someone, uh, met someone new, and they were married not that, not long after. So then he had a house in, in Scarborough. They moved to that house in Scarborough. How do you, how'd you feel? growing up in Scarborough? I was four. So, I mean, I have, I have some images that are seared into my mind of, of around that time when we moved to Scarborough. And I don't know why those images are seared into my mind, but maybe it was that I was in shock or some kind of experiencing some kind of trauma. A very different neighborhood. Also just in a child's mind and how they develop a very different time. Like a very, like, it's almost like, uh, like every year is like 10 years for a kid of that age, it seems. So it was like a new era, you know, and Scarborough was a very different place. Well, kind of, it's, I'm curious because Forest Hill, like you said, has made a big transformation. Yeah. Scarborough was also kind of a transformative place, right? Yeah. So what was it like when you were growing up there? The trees were much smaller than they are now. Uh, demo, like demographically, uh, it was not a lot of, not a lot of, uh, 
immigrant population. So it looked very different. Uh, the food is a lot better now. Um, you know, it's a lot of uh, so-called ethnic food that's, that's made the place a lot better. A lot more people, which I don't like, which is, you know, good for me. I'm in Guelph. Um, yeah, I went back for my uncle's funeral last year. And uh, he lived in the same house that he lived in when I was a child. And uh, it, it changed a lot, but then there were some things that, like, hadn't changed at all, which is always a little strange going back in time, you know. And then I went to his house, and uh, my cousin still lives there, and the paint was the same. Wow on the wall from when I was a kid. And, and around each light switch was like a worn out area because it had been 40 years that it had been not been painted. And so, you know, heavy use in the light switches. It was, it was, you know, bizarre. Well, I'm curious because recently, like we went back to Taiwan. My right. daughter came with us too. And we, uh, we went back to some of her old schools and she had very different impressions of sizes of things. Of course. Right. So what did you have that kind of feeling too when you went back in the house? Uh, yeah, very much so. It's tiny. Yeah. Like I grew up in a house that was probably, uh, I'd say 850, 900 square feet. And I never considered how small it was when I was a child, but I went to my uncle's house, which is of a very similar size and thought, oh, this is, it's like a living, it's like a shed. You know, it's like, it's just so tiny. Yeah. Each room is so, so tiny. Yeah. yeah, yeah, it was bizarre. Same thing happened to me at going to my back to my grade school years ago. Ceilings were really low and the hallways were really narrow. And it was but not as a child; it was huge. Yeah. It was a school, it was a massive institution. Yeah, it's interesting how that how that how that yeah that changes for us. Yeah, yeah. Go back to those places. Yeah, and Scarborough is like that too. The whole city of Scarborough is like that. You know? Yeah. Well, well, it's going on. <laughs> it's very different from what I remember, but the same. Yeah. So when you were growing up, like you said that um, your mom and dad split up when you were one. Mm -hmm. um, your mom got remarried. Yep. So in the parental realm, were were there any kind of, like, well, what did they do? Or My stepfather worked sanitation, city of Toronto. He would go downtown to work. And mother worked for the Kidney Foundation. She worked for OSSTF as a typist or clerk or uh, filer filing things and uh, she she took on jobs at, at first so that she could get us things at Christmas that we wanted um, my stepfather was very good with money meaning he didn't spend a lot um, but he was also just very good with money the reason my mother has money now is because he was very good with money but we ate out once a year when I was a kid for my mother's birthday oh, wow. that was the one time we ate out wow we did get ice cream each time we went to the cottage, which was a big deal. But that was it. That was it. Yeah. And having said that, we had a cottage, and he built it. And it was. And when I look back at it now, it was like it was like a resort. It was. It was like a two and a half car garage that he built. It was a big cottage with heat and uh, amenities and uh, beachfront and a wall that he built and docks and boats and I had no idea at the time. So the cottage is probably bigger than your house. Um, no, the house had a had a basement, so <laughs> it was a very similar size, though. But I mean, it seemed bigger because the rooms, the living room, was much bigger, um, and you had to hold outside because it was summertime. You know, but 
I think that's where he put all the money. So in his mind, he, he never explained it, that, or anything, but in his mind, he was probably thinking, I'm going to, you know, rein everything in, not spend money on anything except this one thing, this cottage thing. And I think his, in his mind, he was, he, that was his way of saying that he loved us, that he, that he appreciated our, us being there. And this is what he was doing for us, this, this thing, this one big gesture. And I never, I was, I never, kids don't understand that, you know? Yeah. I never, like, nobody ever, my mother probably did, but I don't remember him ever, like, showing any appreciation for us. Like, physical. There was no physical contact. Unless he was, like, giving us the strap or mm-hmm. something, you know, the spoon or whatever, like, spanking us or smacking us around. Yeah, so that's what kids need. I realized later in life, like, I don't need a cottage. And he gave me a car once. He's done with his car. He's like, you want my car? Uh, sure. What I would have rather have had was, hey, good work, good job on that thing. Um, I love you. That goes way further. Just FYI. <laughs> that stuff goes a lot further. Just spend time and, yeah. and be be there with your kid. Yeah, That's what I needed. I, I shouldn't speak for anybody else. But. Well, do you feel like that had, that had any kind of um, effect on on you as you started to move through the world? Like, especially as you started to get into high school and make making decisions later on in life? Yeah. I mean, we weren't given the opportunity to go to university. If you wanted to go to university, you had to pay your own way. Um, they had enough money to send us to university. Um, and my brother had to appeal to OSAP with a letter from my stepfather saying that he wasn't going to give him any money because OSAP could see the income and go, well, why are you, I don't understand. Why is this person not being supported in, in university? Everyone else, you know, a large percentage of people are supported through university. And he had to write a letter that said, I will not give this person money. And he didn't like my brother either. They did not get along. He moved out when he was 15. Oh, wow. Yeah. And my mother got a job to support him. Yeah. So my mother, in my mind, in a sense, chose our stepfather over her son to remain in the house so in, in a way it was like on one hand he was he was sort of leaving something for you guys or your mother or something in his own way with the cottage and everything but on the other hand he was withholding other things yeah I, my my opinion he was withholding withholding things that were more important you but that was his way. But you he couldn't do it any other would, way. You think that he was withhold? Like, did you think it was a conscious thing? Did he? No, no. I mean, we're talking about emotions and his own trauma and right. his own response to having an instant family. He married, yeah. my, married my mother. She had two kids, and his his sister had died in, in his youth, and his mother had left them. Like she had just left for years, and then came back many years later. So he had his own issues, and. He was incapable of showing, um, like overt affection, like demonstrating that in that way that I thought, my opinion, kids need to see, feel, and have, you know, on a daily basis to feel like they belong. So, and then, you know, he hated my brother and they didn't get along. So that was another separating 
thing. It was only years later when I was a, well, when I was an adult that I realized that he, he that was his way of showing that he cared for us. That was the only way he could do it. So, and I appreciated that. But as a child, I need to hear it. I need to see it. I need to feel it as a child because this doesn't work. Yeah. So, when, like, how old were you when you when you figured out that you were going to have to, if you wanted to go to university, you were going to have to do it on your own? Um, it was one of those things that I never, I never consciously thought, like, it was only years later that I realized, oh, right, <laughs> I, I didn't go because I couldn't go. I didn't have, like, I had a lot of problems with anxiety when I was a kid. I, uh, I didn't finish high school. I couldn't go. I had agoraphobia. I couldn't leave my bedroom. Wow. For many months. Yeah. Um. Why is that? Just psychological torture <laughs> from my stepfather. Like he was also, he, he's, you know, he's multidimensional. Yeah. He, he was like the guy that, you know, provided the cottage and the, and that kind of stuff to show that he cared. He built me this massive unit in my bedroom, like gigantic wall to wall, floor to ceiling unit that was dressers and shelves and mirrors and, you know, but I didn't ask for it. I don't know if he did it because he was, he wanted the project. I feel like he did it because he wanted to show his appreciation, his love for us. But, um, I don't remember where I was going with that. Uh, hmm. About realizing when you, yeah, I did. It just, wouldn't have to pay for, I, I didn't, I never, why, I never realized it until I was an adult. Anxiety, though. Oh, the anxiety was yeah. just from his, like, you, it, it, it was, there was a constant threat of violence from him he was he didn't talk a lot he was very strict and he was not he was implacable he was he he would wouldn't budge on anything there was no negotiating with him at all and any rebuttal uh seemed impossible from my point of view you know like Later, when when his son was born, my half brother, they were at a restaurant, and he, I think he was giving my my brother Dave, my half brother, a hard time, and, he, and Dave just said "fuck you," and he got up off the table, out of the table, and left, and he just kind of laughed. So you know, when I heard that, I was like, "Oh, maybe I never knew him," but I was terrified of him. My reality was that I was terrified, so I grew up with this hyper vigilance of like each door, like when you go into the basement, you can't close the door too loudly. You know what I mean? You can't have, there was a pen mark on my stereo. You put a pen mark on my stereo, do not surpass this mark on the volume knob. There was, and there was just this constant feeling of threat. Impending. Limiting behavior. Yeah, this impending doom always. And I think that manifested in me with anxiety and, uh, you know, becoming a catastrophist and hypervigilance and, and that shaped me a lot. It made, made me in, in a lot of ways who I am, but, um, you know, but I'm also funny. I'm also like really gregarious. I'm also a um, pretty nice guy. So I don't know, did that, did, is that just who I am and who I always would be? 
or did did his did that situation also shape me and cause that behavior? Because my brother wasn't like that. My brother was the one that my older brother. He was the one that was like, I don't know what I'm doing wrong, and I don't give a shit. I'm just going to carry on with my life, and uh, you know, just sort of bulldoze my way through all of this stuff. And I was the one who walked on eggshells. So I got to stay, and I was the one that was liked because I was never a problem. And he was the one that was disliked because he was a problem. So, so my anxiety comes from my response to who he was. Yeah. So did that, do you think that, well, did you have any kind of, um, you know, when kids are young, they think they want to, they want to grow up to be something or do something or some people have very clear ideas about what they want to do. Some people just, you know, I want to be a fireman. I want to, you know, the, the stereotypical, um, kind of things that the archetypal yeah, teacher kids want to grow up to be right doctor. or 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 things that are suggested to kids that they should yeah, be yeah cuz i mean sounds like both of both of um the parents you had in the home were very uh they they work 9 to 5 jobs like kind of regular stuff with benefits yeah. and all that yeah. kind of stuff so you didn't grow up in an entrepreneurial family no so did you have any kind of aspirations of what you wanted to grow up and do? I wanted to be a writer. So I ended up going to, uh, I took creative writing at Douglas College. When did you figure out you wanted to be a writer? Early. Like, uh, I think around 15, 14, 15. And, and for me, big changes for me come suddenly. So that was a, I remember that was a sudden inspiration. Were you writing at the time? Um, no, no. But then I was when I had that, when I had the epiphany, Oh, I want to, I want to, I want to do this with, I'm, I'm reading going, Oh, this is amazing. I want to do this. So I bought a computer and started writing and was writing. And then I, I, uh, had a portfolio of things that I'd written and I sent them off to this, uh, years later, 10 years later. I sent them off to the uh, to this college, New Westminster College, and uh, or sorry, uh, Douglas College, New Westminster, DC, and was accepted. Do you remember the first, like, the first time you sat down and wrote wrote something that really meant something to you? I remember liking everything I wrote because <laughs> I was too young to go to be self-editing and go, ah, oh, that's trash, and just throw it out. I was really attached to my writing because I thought it was. It was such an outlet, you know, like it sounds cliche, but it really was like we didn't we didn't do much with the cottage and then we were at home and and it was a great outlet for me and all of my stuff was really dark and and a lot of things I wrote about happened underground. I mean, I'm sure there's a psychiatrist out there that could make just some, some fantastic observations <laughs> from all of my my writing about underground and then groups of people that speak as one and like I had these running themes throughout my writing. And lone, like loners, and you know, and really dark stuff. You still have those stories? I probably I have a couple somewhere. Yeah. yeah. And then I wrote similar stuff that was probably a little bit better when I was in uh, writers' college. And then, uh, you know, I I never really had 
enough. Uh, I wasn't never organized very well, and I never had the, the confidence to, to take anything to its completion. So a problem that I've had is that my mother, when I was younger, she didn't she didn't praise us. That's not true. She didn't give us a lot of affection because she thought that my stepfather would be offended or it would bother him. Mm-hmm. But she would say things like, to me anyway, she'd say, you're special, you're smarter than most people, uh, you can do anything you want. And that was not a good thing to say. <laughs> because I wasn't. I, I was just a regular kid. And so saying that I'm smarter than everybody else or every other kid made it impossible for me to do anything. I'm not blaming her. I'm just saying this is how it was in my mind. Right. That my I interpreted that as I can't possibly do anything because, and not consciously, because it, I could never live up to that. I could never live up to that expectation. So you, so you didn't really believe what she was telling you? No, I think I did. But, but maybe part of my mind didn't. Like it went to, it kind of went to my head, but then I couldn't, like my inner self was like, I can't, I'm not doing this because if I do it and I finish it and it's not great, then where does that leave me? You know, I, in hindsight, I wish I'd made, done all kinds of things and completely fucked them up so that I could be you know, have a normal perspective. So the high expectations kind of led to a fear of failure? Yeah, and led to, like, inertia and not making decisions and not moving forward and not choosing, um, you know, from a holistic sort of more complete understanding of who I was. So I just, I would start projects and not finish them, just, like, chronically. That's really interesting. Because you, you, you almost think like, that's the, that's, that's the best thing a mom could be is to tell their kid that they're the best and, you know, they're handsome and they're wonderful as they are. Um, as they are. That's the key. Yeah. Yeah. As they are. But I was smarter than every other kid. I was smarter than everybody. And I did really well on tests. Like, you know, there's a test you do in school, you did anyway at the time, and I was in grade school, and I scored like a university student. And, you know, I was, me and this other girl were taken out of class, and anyway, this, so then it was like, oh, in my mind, I guess I am, I am, I am smarter than everybody else, but I can't live up, I can't do anything, because then everyone will see that I'm not. Because I'm, I'm not, I never was. I'm just a, I'm just a guy, I'm just a regular schmo. But, you know, I can do this really well, maybe. I can understand words and context and writing and things like that well, but you know, everything else is really average. And everybody, everybody's like that. Every person has their strengths and weaknesses. So. Did you go right from school, like from high school into college, or did, I, did you have to? Um, so I dropped out in grade 12. Right. I was the uh, student council vice president. Um, and that's the only year, as far as I know, that school didn't get jackets and rings. <laughs> because I was like, no, couldn't go to school anymore. Um, that was was that the year of the anxiety? Yeah. So when I was sixteen, 
I think that's that was well, you know, fourteen, fifteen, sixteen. Those are bad, really nasty. A lot of disassociation, a lot of anxiety, some depression, probably, but mostly anxiety. Um, and then agoraphobia. I couldn't go out, and uh, and then I went on this program called Katimovic. Yeah, I've, I've heard of that. So it was a government program that ended. I think the conservatives put it down. Um, so it was, you go for nine months to three different parts of Canada, three months at a time, and you are mixed with other kids. So I think it was 16 to 21 years old or 19 years old or something from all over Canada. You're in a group of 12 and you have these group leaders and you live in a house in a community in Canada for three months and then you move on. And so I went to Winnipegosis, which is sort of lower central Manitoba. It's not a disease. Uh, it's not something that you catch. It is an actual town. It's not where outcasts from Winnipeg go. <laughs> <laughs> well, possibly. I don't know. Kind of sounds like uh, a place, and a then, prison camp for people who didn't make it in Winnipeg. <laughs> I, I, was that the first place? No, that was the second place. We went to uh, Saint-Dec, Quebec, which is a tiny little town between Montreal and Quebec City, so yeah. north between the two and then we went to Hamilton was this all in like homestays or no no you live as a group oh. as 12 people you have like multiple bunk beds in the house oh yeah 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 and you so so you'll have a week where you're in charge of making the bread doing the chores making all the food and then you'll have a week or two or three I can't remember how it worked of uh of working in the community on these community projects and you you are living with people from Quebec from BC from wherever and you learn French, and you you hang out, and you grow, and so it was uh, it it was a very good thing for me to do. Got me out of the house, got me out from away from my stepfather, that situation, and uh, and was formative and helped me out a lot. How'd you get into high, like? How did you learn about the program, or or like guidance what, counselor? What was the impetus? Guidance counselor at high school said, "There's this program, and you might want to try it." So I and it, it was a lottery. You you applied and you might not get in oh yeah yeah they just pick your name on a hat you know and so i got in like oh that's great so it wasn't and i was even... living in paris ontario okay. at the time uh because i had managed to crawl away from scarborough uh, my brother accompanied me on a train so i couldn't go alone i was 16 17 at the time i couldn't do it so he accompanied me on a train to my father's house he lived in paris ontario at the time and i stayed with him for until I got accepted to Katimovic, which was, well, I don't know, three, four months, maybe less, you know, yeah. And then did Katimovic and then, then came back and I think I became a cab driver. Really? Oh, yeah. How, how long did you do Katimovic? It's, uh, it was, um, I want to say nine months. So you were like 17, 18 when you became a cab driver. I was 19. I was the youngest cab driver in Toronto. Really? Yeah. Yeah, that was a trip. <laughs> <laughs> Literally, yeah. Uh, many trips. Uh, yeah. Yeah. And I, I did work as a stage manager somewhere in there, too. There's this program called Futures, and it was kind of like attached to EI. And anyway, I worked for this children's theater company. So were you writing during this whole period? 
Because you mentioned uh, that you did go to not college after team right? Not during team event. So when I went to when I went to college for writing, I was twenty six. Twenty five, twenty six. So there was some intervening years where I I don't know remember what I did. <laughs> I just messed around. Yeah. Yeah. Experimented a bit. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I mean, I and I drove when I was driving a taxi. I was I had a girlfriend. We were living together, and so yeah. And then I went to Taiwan, and yeah, a lot happened in my twenties. <laughs> yeah, sounds like it. Yeah, uh, yeah. So I yeah I left the house at uh, sixteen, seventeen, and uh, never never. I went back briefly actually when I was driving a cab. Uh, yeah, and uh, yeah, driving a taxi. Great for an anxious person. But good for a performer. Like, I'm also, like, I'm really highly adaptive. So I was the only one that didn't get beat up or, only, robbed, or robbed. The only cab driver? In, in that one garage mm. at that time. Because obviously there would have been drivers coming in and out. Yeah. But for quite a while, I understood that I was the only one who hadn't been robbed or beaten. And it was because I would become your friend, like like that like I'm able to suss people out really quickly and I got really good at that when I was a cab driver so when in school in cab driver school you're told if somebody sits in the front you you have a fare and it's two people one of them gets in the front and one of them gets in the back nobody ever sits in the front in Toronto you don't sit in the front here you do Guelph it's like why are you sitting in the back you should come up and sit in the front so I had that these two very silent very nervous young men. One got in the front, one got in the back. And we were told in, in cab school, that's bad. You're going to get robbed. So, and they were really nervous. And I was like, this is it. This is it. It's happening. So I was like, hi, guys. How are you, man? Like, and I just started talking. And I talked about the family I had. I think I probably had two kids. Uh, I didn't have a family, nor did I have kids. And I was talking about the vacations we just had. It was awesome. My son, you know, he's sick. He had a cold. He was cool, man. You know, he's going to be fine. Like, what are you guys up to tonight? Let's go on. So we became, they, we didn't become friends, but they knew me, like, like, as quickly as possible as I could get all the information out. And so we got to a point in the, in the ride when they were like, okay, all right, we're here. And they got out of the cab. They paid me and they left. They understood that their actions would have a deeper impact than if they were yeah. just rob- robbing a cabbie. Right. I wasn't just, I wasn't an unknown to them anymore. I was a person I, and I had a history and they could imagine things about my life and they knew that it would, it would hurt and they knew how it would hurt. And so they, they decided that they couldn't do it. So do you think Katimovic had a, had a, had a big part in pulling you out of that anxiety? you know, cocoon that you were in yeah. and then, and then vaulting you into being a, a cabbie <laughs> a performing that, could, cab driver. that could save their life. Yeah, probably. I mean, some of these talents, uh, are probably inherent, but yeah, Kimovic was a big, was a big, big help. Yeah. It was, uh, yeah, it got me through, I think that my twenties. Is there any kind of pivotal place or moments Maybe it was Win- Winnipegosis <laughs> that, that you felt there was a there was a switch flip. No, there was never a switch flip. I'm still I still have crippling anxiety. I still I'm still a catastrophist. I still 
I still look at my son in the middle of the night, make sure he's breathing. He's eight. You know, I still do that. And I battle with that anxiety every single day. And for me, it's about, it's, it's, I'm just, I'm hyper vigilant. So any little thing that goes wrong with my body, I say wrong, like anything that's outside of really normal makes me very anxious. So I still, I still have a really big, I have a hard time with anxiety still. Yeah, big time. Well, maybe that hyper, hyper vigilance is what, you know, made you aware that day in the cab, right? Sure. I mean, there's pros and cons to every, every condition. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Uh, yeah. I mean, I've gotten pretty good at seeing the, the bright side of things. I, uh, I had to, my brother died when he was 29. This was your older brother? Yeah. Yeah. So I had to see, I had to see through, through that. I had to see, I had to see a positive come from that. How did, how did that happen? How did he die? Yeah. He was in Africa. He was with, uh, York University and he, uh, like he, he was, was faculty or? No, he was studying. He's getting his master's and his PhD apparently concurrently. I don't know how that happens, but whatever. And, uh, so he was assassinated. First his professor was killed three weeks prior to him and then he was killed. And it was a military thing. Who's military? Nobody knows. Scotland Yard investigated, uh, external affairs investigated. And they had five scenarios, I think. I have, I have apparently, I have seen the autopsy pictures. I can't remember that. I have read the report. Don't remember any of that. I don't, I could tell you that I never used to know what year he was, he died in. I never used to know what month, day, because it's just some insomnia or not insomnia, amnesia. Yeah. I wish I had, I have insomnia now too, but it's some form of amnesia as a result of the trauma. I now understand that it was, I think it was 1993 and it was May. So it wasn't a it wasn't a uh, a personal vendetta against him in particular. It was no, it would have been it would have been personal. I think they would have thought, oh, he knows. Uh, you know, one of the five scenarios was sleeping with the wrong woman, or um, there's a he's he's a spy, or he knows too much about the movements of this group or something. But I, I think, you know, the culture there, I can't begin to comprehend the reasons for, I mean, life is, is looked upon differently there. Right. And so if somebody said, yeah, you know what, I think we should just kill that guy just for, you know, just to, just in case, then that probably, you know, that'd be enough for somebody there. Because here it's like, ooh, <laughs> take it really, yeah, really. Don't take it lightly, you know, yeah. but there I think they take it a little different, even though he was a North American guy and I don't know. So that's, I mean, that's part of the reason why I am where I am today, because he, he was uncompromising and he was arrogant and that's probably what got him killed. But I take the positive from those, from how he was and try to use it sometimes in my own life. So you guys are pretty close. Yeah. He was 29. I was 27. Yeah. 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 The reason I'm, I have a barbershop and I work for myself and I'm doing something that feels right is because, because of his death and because I worked at the common. Because you worked where? At the common. Which is the coffee shop right around the corner here. Yeah. 
So the um, I'm trying to place college in the whole timeline. Yeah. Where did that happen? I think I was 25. Yeah. Yeah. So this is that would be after Taiwan. I know it's just going to go on and on and on. That would be after Taiwan. Um, you were teaching English in Taiwan? Yeah. No, I was drinking. <laughs> I was drinking, eating but, steak sandwiches, steak and cheese sandwiches. But making a living teaching English? No, I, I was one of the very few people, I think, that did not make a lot of money teaching. Really? Yeah. I worked at a at an ELSI, so it's it's not a bushiban. It was a, it was a school. Right. And so they didn't pay, like, the money you make at a private student is huge and I, I had no private students I worked at an actual school I worked all day I had classes you know multi-level school yeah floors and uh, hundreds of students all there you know it was all ESL but it was all almost all kids some adults so I didn't I made maybe a quarter of what other people made I, I made enough money to so at the end of my six months which was the limit of your stay, you had to go and renew your visa somewhere. Um, I never understood how to do that, so I just left. <laughs> I, uh, I had enough money to get a one-way ticket from, I don't even know where I flew out of, probably Taipei, and I flew to Seattle, because I couldn't get all the way to Toronto. I had enough money to get to Seattle. <laughs> And then I took a bus from Seattle to Vancouver where my father was living. And then I did a, I stayed there for a couple of weeks and I got an auto drive away. So it's you, somebody's car is in Vancouver or wherever and they want it elsewhere. So mm-hmm. in this case, it was in Vancouver and they wanted it in Burlington. So I drove it for them. And you, and I ended up, it was a, it was a 19, I think it was a 1988 cherry red Camaro. Nice. And it was in the middle of winter. I drove it through the Crow's Nest Pass, and it was terrifying. Really? Because it, those, I don't know if you know, but they have zero handling. Like, they're just, the weight is all wrong, and the suspension was crap, and it's terrifying going through those <laughs> mountain passes. In the oh my God. Of winter, yeah. Oh my God, snowing. Already, I have an image in my mind. It's snowing heavily. There's a truck behind me, and I'm going through like a, a mountain pass. And I'm slipping and sliding, and it was just like I wanted to die. I didn't want to get killed, which I felt like was a possibility, but I wanted to die because it was so awful. The truck was like right on my. Ugh. Anyway, I made it. So you went to visit your father in Vancouver. Yeah. So did you have like did you have connection with him growing up? Yeah, yeah. He used to come every three, four, six weeks and take us out. Yeah. Yeah, it was great. And what did he do? Insurance. He sold insurance commercially. Yeah. So a little more, a little more uh, closer to being closer to that self-employed kind of. I guess so. He, he was, was a salesperson, right? He was, yeah, sure. So he worked alone, but he did work for companies. He worked for insurance companies. Right. Yeah. Yeah, but he he also opened a sports bar in Paris. When when uh, years ago, man, like when I was like. 16, 17, I think just around the Katimavik time. Yeah. And it failed miserably. Yeah. Yeah, I don't think it was open for very long. Somebody ripped him off to, somebody stole like $10,000 from him or something. And uh, 
So he went bankrupt and loaded up his kids, two kids, my two half-sisters and his wife, and they drove to Vancouver. And they lived in somebody's basement. His, So his wife's sister's basement for a year or something until they could rent their own house. Kind of get them off their, get them on their feet again. Yeah. So he was selling mattresses at some point. And then he got back into insurance and, and he retired. Now he lives, uh, he lives in Langley. Yeah. Crazy. Doesn't like it out there. He wants to move back. In Langley, yeah. Yeah. I think against Langley, but it's not my cup of tea. <laughs> yeah. yeah. A lot of people like it out there. I like the, the whole scene in BC. He doesn't like it out there. He's from here. Yeah. Yeah. This is his scene. Not there. But he's there. He's stuck there. So when you came back from Taiwan, you went to college? Did you have to go back to high school or to get your... To, like? Do I went D? to high school at some point and took grade 13 English. Passed. Did well. Uh, so no, I went as a mature student. Okay. College, yeah. Yeah. And I was, I think I was 26. And uh, that would have been two years of college. So you still felt you wanted to be a writer. Yeah. Oh, yeah. And I took creative writing. Yeah. And in fact, uh, many years later, I was living in Halifax and I applied to Concordia for creative writing and was accepted. And uh, uh, so I was moved from Halifax to Montreal, was accepted, and was taking courses. And and then I didn't I didn't finish that because I got a job on a TV show. TV show. Mm-hmm. What were you doing on that? I was a host of a TV show. <laughs> I know, right? What? Yeah, they had they had ads up asking for prospective hosts for this TV show. It was a fix it show for women. Basically, there was an ad on the side of a postal box that said, if you're handy and you're comfortable on camera or something, I don't know what it said, you should apply. And, and I never saw it, but a friend of mine did and called for me and convinced them to call me to do an audition, which is the producer herself told me, I never, I know, if you want the job, you need to call me. But she's like, ah, I'll call, whatever. So she called me and I did the audition. I got the job. Wow. I was one of four hosts, so there was only ever three hosts at a time on each episode. Yeah. So, yeah, I was one of four. And uh, the other three were, like, these really handsome, muscular, like, dudes. Very handsome. And I was the funny, potentially gay one. <laughs> <laughs> how, how did how did you know that that, that, that was your... Uh your kind of um, well, it just came to persona that they were that they were trying to. Project. Well, I knew that they hired me because I was funny, right? And, and because you know, in that in that uh, what's it called? Uh, not with, with that kind of reality TV. Yeah. So in reality TV, funny's good, right? Funny, yeah. dramatic, whatever. Yeah, it's engaging, right? Yeah, sure. So I was funny, so that was good. That worked for them. And then you know, oh yeah, maybe he's gay. Sure. You know, I never played anything up, but I think there was one episode where there was a shower, something wrong with the shower, some mold, or the tiles are falling off, and I went, ooh! You know, I just threw my hands up and went, ooh, that's gross. And then, oh, he's a gay guy. <laughs> I don't know. Whatever. 
And also in comparison to the other hosts. Yeah. I just was not masculine. Like zero masculinity compared to them. Right. Yeah. They were the ones that got to say, you know, do you want a cock? Do you want to, did you want to do the screwing? Do you know what I mean? Like all that innuendo. Yeah. I'm not, and I was like, I'm not doing that. That's not my thing. Is that okay? They're like, oh, that's fine. It's fine. You know, here's a funny, potentially gay one. It's fine. So, yeah, I did that for a year. Yeah. The show only lasted for a year? Yeah, my boss my year? boss was Debbie Travis. And she, uh, th- this is what I heard. Whether or not this is true, I don't know. You like Debbie Travis, the painter? Yeah, the yeah, painting? Painted House, whatever it was called. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, she, she was my boss. And she... The home, the, what is it? Home, home Repair. Home Network. Home, home I, sure. Yeah. And so what I understood was that our show was on the same network that her show was on, and then t- she took her show to a different network, and then in order to punish her, they canceled our show. <laughs> our show was good. It was a good right. show. Anyway, anyway, you can still watch an episode on YouTube. If you Google it. It's called Completely Hammered. Completely Hammered? Yep. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Well, it seems... It seems like, what year would have that would that have been? Oh, Yeah. Seems, like, <laughs> seems kind of like a, a radical idea. Like fifteen years on ago, on Canadian television, at that time. Maybe, maybe. I mean, you know, reality TV was happening then. Yeah. Uh, but it was it was in the yeah it was in the stream of those things. Yeah. And it was but it was a good show. It was like I watched it. It was like this is fine. This was is, it like what network was it on? W W Network. Oh, okay. W Network. Yeah. It was fine. Yeah. In fact, I became a letter carrier after, and I was in the Santa Claus Parade in Richmond Hill as a letter carrier, collecting letters from the kids, and somebody was like, oh my god, they hired famous people to be letter carriers, and I was like, what? Are you... Oh, you saw the show. Yeah. You saw the TV show, and you think I'm famous. Okay. You think I'm a celebrity. You think I'm a celebrity. I'm not a celebrity. Yeah. At all. Not even close. Yeah, that was weird. Yeah, so then I became a letter carrier, I guess. <laughs> I guess. Yeah. So things just kind of happened. See, I would just... I would you weren't do really things. planning things out. No, exactly. I, that's been my whole thing. My entire life to date, except, you know, like a year ago, changed. I would just do things because they became they came up. They came up. Like I was driving a cab in Toronto, and a friend of mine said... Oh, you don't seem to be enjoying yourself. Why don't you go to Taiwan? I'll meet you there. Sure. So I went to Taiwan. She never showed up, but I went to Taiwan. You know, I stayed for six months. Was that how the cab the cab driver job happened to you? Kind of just, it happened? Yeah. I mean, I had the idea to do it, but it was kind of a romantic you actually had to go to I mean, I was a for, writer, right? right? Got to keep in mind, I want to be a writer. Right. So what's what better than to be a waiter or, you know... But you had to go to school for that, right? you, had to go, you said you had to go to cab driver school, yeah, right? Yeah, but it's, you know, you go for three weeks or something, a month or whatever it was. And so it's not like London black cab cabbies where they... No, 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 God, no. No, jeez, no. Not even close. Mm. You didn't have to know where you're going at all. In fact, my trick was always just to say, they'd get in the cab and they'd say, they'd say I'm going to, you know, whatever, Dawson Danforth. If I was somewhere far away from that, I'd say, well, how do you want to get there? 
And they would usually say, oh, I just want you to take the, take that road and go left and right. Because, okay, yeah, that's right. So I wouldn't have to, the only time I ever had to figure out how to get somewhere was when somebody called a taxi. And we had a Purley's for that. It was the coolest thing. It wasn't, it was a map book without maps. What was it called? Purley's. So it was a map book without maps. There were no maps in it. So it would say the street name. Yeah. And then it would tell you how to get there. Would say it's two blocks east of this street, which is next to that street, which is over here, which is in this area. Bum, 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 like bum. it was a readout on the screen. And it always no, it was a book. It was an oh. actual book. No, no, this is this is before all that. So this is it was a book, and you go, oh yeah, okay, oh, I know where to go. Okay, okay, and you find it like that. Yeah, it worked every time. It was brilliant. Yeah, so I, I did. I drove a cab for four years. Yeah. I didn't have my license for three of those years. Really? Cab license. My the first person who hired me to drive taxi was John Beck, and he took my license, filed it away, and I just didn't think about it ever again. I had the picture part. Yeah. And I think for the longest time I thought that was the license. Right. (laughs) You had to renew it every year. I was like, okay, (laughs) whatever. Yeah. Why did he take it? I don't know. I don't know. Nope, oh, closed. Yep, sorry, dude. Yeah, that's some hair. Somebody's at the door. Yeah, I saw that. Yeah. So it's it's kind of interesting that you the cat the cab driver experience kind of set you up in a way for for a lot of stuff that you've done since with your life. Maybe. Like, I mean, you were mentioning, well, let's go back to college. Like when you finished college and, you know, you had the aspirations to be a writer, did you ever get a job writing? No. No, I was a, I was a short story writer, poetry writer. So there's no work, there's no money in that. So it's not, you weren't, <laughs> you weren't hoping to do any kind of journalistic writing. No, it wasn't journalism. No, it was, it was short stories, novels, poetry. Yeah. That was what I wrote. So when you finished college, did you just kind of let that lie? Uh, no, I think I wrote for a while. I submitted things. I got stuff published uh, in a bunch of, you know, those magazines. Yeah. Nothing nothing too uh, good. Because <laughs> that uh, would have been around the time like blogging was starting to happen, right? No, I feel like it was before that. Yeah? Maybe. I don't know. Yeah. No, I built websites too early on. In the internet era, I got hired by Geist Magazine to build a website. Geist Magazine. Geist Magazine is a Canadian magazine, sort of like The New Yorker, Harper's, yeah. Walrus. Uh, but I, I forgot to like do it. Like it was a satirical magazine? No, no, not at all. No, it's like um, just like Canadian, strictly Canadian content, mm. Canadian stories, Canadian facts, and. Um, I forgot to build a website until the very last minute and I threw something together that was terrible just utterly horrific and uh, gave it to them and they, and they yelled at me <laughs> they yelled at you yeah, they yelled at me. well Stephen Osborne who is the the, the uh, chief editor or publisher or something he yelled at me <laughs> it was terrible he understood that it was bad it was very bad 
It was very bad, yeah. Because I find a lot, of, a lot of people, especially around that time, probably didn't know what a good or a bad website was. Well, this was bad. Yeah. This was bad. They wanted a presence online. Yeah. But, uh, yeah, no, I just, I failed miserably. Yeah. So you said you became a letter carrier. Yep. And that was after college? That was well after college. I became a letter carrier probably around when I was 35. Yeah. I'm 51 now. Yeah. How long did you do that for? Uh, eight years. Letter carrier. So I was a letter carrier in Richmond Hill for two years. And then we moved to Montreal. And I was a letter carrier there for the duration. Yeah. Yeah. Did you enjoy it? I liked the delivery part. I didn't like the flyers. I certainly didn't like the um, management. Yeah. It was a good job for a while, and then Postal Transformation came in um, in Montreal. And so I went from a Friday having 440 or 450 doors to the next Monday in a new building with a new way to sort mail and 1,400 doors, 40 parcels, and two pickups in a truck. Just threw everybody off. And then after about a month or two, 70% of our station was out on stress leave. Wow. And we were being harassed on a constant basis. So I was working 10 hours a day on average with no breaks just to get the thing done every day. And this is Montreal, so Villaray, so, you know, stairs up and down, like each and every delivery was like stairs. And uh, we would be harassed at the end of every shift. Why are you doing overtime? Why are you doing overtime? We would say, well, you know, because uh, the routes are too long. And um, you should come out and see us running to get the routes done on, on time. And they wouldn't because they knew they were too long. So they used to come and watch you do your route, but they wouldn't now because mm-hmm. they knew it was too long. So it's just awful. Yeah. Yeah, because, I mean, I don't know if other people have this kind of stereotypical image of a a mailman. So right? It's an ideal. Of walking door to door, talking to the people you're handing letters to. You can't do that. You don't have time. Yeah. There's no time for that. I actually I actually went to, I tried to be a, uh, a mail delivery person yeah. at one point. I went through the course. It's a good thing it failed. Took the test. No, I passed with flying colors. No, it's a good thing you didn't become a letter <laughs> carrier. The reason I didn't do it is because they were... They wouldn't call you? Well, you had to be on call. Right. And you have to be on call, like, for well, years. I had to support a family. For years. Yeah. Yeah. Yep. I know people who work on call in in, uh, in Guelph here for years. They've been doing it for years. It's, it's not right. Yeah, because I was kind of imagining um, you being a cab driver and then that... That skill of just talking to people and getting to know people and stuff would translate really well into being a mailman, but it just sounds like you didn't get any opportunity to no. do, to do that at all. No. I had, yeah, I mean, I had an opportunity to do that at the cafe when I worked there a couple of years ago, and that, that led me to thinking, I like talking to people. Now, at this stage in my life, now I, I feel like I have some experience, I've done a lot of different things. I like talking to people. So I'm going to talk to people. And um, I really enjoyed it. And I had a newfound confidence. Like I, I could talk to anybody. And I, yeah, 
and I wasn't a pushover. When did you have the new kind of coffee? At the cafe. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. So or you maybe had... I already had it and I didn't realize I had it until I got there. Right. You know, and then and then it was like, oh, I feel like I'm more myself. This feels real. Yeah. This feels like who I am now feels feels comfortable. Right. It feels right. And then I was never gonna get enough hours and I wanted something of my own. And uh, this is another one of those times when I made a sudden shift. Like it was within a day or two that I said, I said I'm going to be a barber. But before that, like you worked as a as a as a um, mail mail delivery guy for eight, eight years, years, and then I moved here and was inside for two or three years as a clerk. So you work here in that capacity, and like no, not, 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 not in that capacity. not as a letter carrier. But at but for Canada Post, yeah, um, and and so at one day you just decided to quit, or was it a long a long thing? Well, out? I mean, I'm just going to become a uh, I'm just going to go back to school, right? Be a, a hairstylist, barber. So I said to my wife, I you know I can't do this job anymore. And she said, That's cool. I want to, and she said, What do you want to do? I said, I'm going back to school. So oh, okay, awesome. I remember you telling me you were also doing home inspection. Yeah, I had a home inspection business in Montreal. Doing that on the side. Yep. Yeah. So I was doing that. And then I did it here too. I had a business here doing home inspections and then realized that most offers were being uh, put in without condition because if you had conditions attached to your offer, there would be less consideration paid to your offer. Even if you're offering more than a person that so if a person had no condition and offered less than you, that offer would often be, or could be taken. Because conditions now are, are like, ah, I'm not going to, you know, the seller's like, and I can't deal with that. Mm -hmm. I can, you know, and it's, it goes out saying that if you have an inspection, you're probably going to ask for some money off, right? Right. Like, oh, I found your chimney needs this. I mean, there's, there's like a 30-page document that comes with a home inspection. And everything costs money, so you're gonna say, you know, I in order to fix all this stuff, I need forty thousand dollars off. Yeah. No. <laughs> so yeah, so I did that, and then I stopped doing that, and then I went to school for hair. And, uh... So were you working as for Canada Post, doing home inspections and working at the Common all at the same time? Yeah. Wow. Yeah, I think so. For a while there, yeah. Just just because? Like, just because you wanted to, like, you were... Like, I'm trying, I've always... Were you exploring, I've, or what I've always was tried it? to... I've always tried to... I've tried to do things, uh, and not, and not done a lot of planning, <laughs> and, uh, uh, just sort of based on, and a, a really not very well fleshed out idea of what, I want to be or what I want to do with my time. So <laughs> a lot of the things I've done are to have that, like building websites. I did it because I could. Mm -hmm. My roommate was doing it. Like, right. oh, man, I'll do it too, whatever. You know? uh, Canada Post. Oh, look, they're hiring a Canada Post. Oh, shit, I got hired 11 years later. You know, And then trying to get out of that, was the home inspection thing, and the home inspection thing, you know, fit into the criteria. Work alone, work outside, um, 
kind of work with people. Work with people, yeah. Um, and it would be interesting, you know, because you're kind of a detective. So, you know, and I, it turns out I didn't love it. Okay. Um, I was good at it, but you know, I wouldn't love it. Yeah, I mean, it's the simple things, you know, like working at a cafe, making coffee. Yeah. That send you off in a totally, totally different direction. Well, yeah, and um, you had considered opening your own cafe at one point. Yeah, right? that's right. I forget all this stuff. It was in the ward, right? Yeah. Yeah, it was really close. It was close. Yep. And just for people who aren't familiar, the ward is a place in Guelph. Um, St. Patrick's Ward. Yeah, it's kind of like, in a way, it's uh, the other side of the tracks, it's, or it yeah, has been yeah, for, for a sure. long time, but it's, yeah, it's going being gentrified through, now. Yeah, it's going through for changes sure. for yeah. sure. Yeah, it's a really, really cool part of Guelph. Yeah. And I thought there might be a, uh, a space there that I could uh, make coffee. And there was, and I was, I was given the opportunity, and and decided against it. And that, and I remember saying to her, "I'm not going to do it. Thank you for, you know, thinking of me and letting me present this to you, and you saying yes, and that's great. But I'm going to go to hair school." <laughs> I remember saying that to her. She's like, uh, "Great, not the same thing <laughs> at all." Yeah. yeah. So, well, what, like, what made this switch? What was the change? What, um, I wasn't why sure. Did you, what was it? Like, there there must have been something about, like, there must have been something that came to you and said... This is better. Well, well, because you were saying that you kind of stumbled upon things yeah. throughout your life, yeah, right? Yeah, yeah. So, being a barber, was there a point where you stumbled upon being a hairstylist no, or a barber? No. <laughs> it was probably the most most considered occupation that I've had thus far. But still, not as considered as, as some people would do. Like I, you know, I worked out the numbers and figured if the rent was this and I had this many haircuts, could I sustain it? And I, I, I don't think I have never had a um, business plan. I never had a business plan. And so Canada Post, I cashed out my pension. Wow. I didn't like I got nothing. <laughs> and. Uh, I got some, you know, money that you had to that I had to invest. Mm-hmm. I couldn't take, but any money that I could take out as cash, I used for this business. Yeah, that was a big risk. Yeah, and you know, it's very American of me. <laughs> That's an interesting comment. Well, I just feel like Americans are amazing in that they'll risk it all, more so than Canadians. Obviously, it's a generalization, but. Americans are like they're just some of them would be like like a lot of them I feel I feel like will be like yep this is the thing I want to do can do it can max out all my credit cards can sell all my property you know can sell a kidney good to go <laughs> and it could fail yep but I'm gonna try it yeah whereas in Canada a lot more conservative a lot more reserved those stereotypes are true but I did the, I did the thing where it's like yep this is gonna do it <laughs> well I'm talking about like probably one of the biggest um the biggest risks in your in your career transitions in life you have a family at this time yes so i mean that's something on the plate that is is huge when you're taking that kind of risk right yeah well it was only because my wife said that it'll be fine that i did it how long have you guys been together i should know that shouldn't i 
a long time. Better hope she doesn't listen to this. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Uh no, we don't. We we never know when our uh, anniversary is. We we get, we get calls from various parents who are like happy anniversary. You're like uh, right, right. Yeah, yeah. Thank you. Yeah, we've been married for I don't know, I don't know, ten, twelve, fourteen years. I don't know, ten, eleven. I'm really I don't know. Well, where did two thousand and seven? I'm gonna say. Okay. So that's ten years. Where'd you meet her? Montreal. So yeah. while you were while you were doing after the TV show, show during the show, I think during the TV show, during the TV show. So my fire escape led down to a roof that would lead into her bedroom window. <laughs> so my dog. I kind of that kind of sounds creepy a little bit, but <laughs> it's not. It wasn't. I never. You knew her before. I was, I was you never discovered like in the middle right? of the night, like. Hello. No, my dog could go down the stairs and into her room and, and would. Mm. Oh, right. Right. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And now you guys also have a child. Now right? we have a child. Yeah, and so you know, the really the the fundamentally fundam- the real the only reason that this worked is because I wanted it. Too, but it was because my wife said, "Yeah, you should do that," and I support you. And uh, and I was the one who was like, "I don't know, that's a big risk. Sounds feels kind of stupid, given my history, not finishing things and kind of not planning and not doing well, any of that stuff." And she's like, "Well, I think we'll be okay," uh, which is kind of a shock to me, but. Welcome. Had she had like before that? Had she had issue with that whole trend in your personality? Oh God, yeah, and still does. Yeah, it's it's maddening for her. I'm sure. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. But she said, you know, people will come to your barbershop because because you're an engaging. You talk to people. That's why. Maybe, yeah. maybe you'll give them good haircuts. <laughs> maybe you know you do. Luckily, I do, and uh, it's fun to be here. And so she said, it'll be fine. You will be successful. So she was the one that gave it, really made it happen. That's an amazing gift, eh? Yeah. No kidding. Otherwise, I'd still be at the fucking post office. That would suck. Or, like, really, I would be really miserable. Wow. Woo. Or dead. And uh, so this is, uh, yeah, it's quite a gift. Yeah. 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 And how does your, uh, how does your kid feel about it? He loves it. Yeah. I think he's proud of me. Yeah. yeah. And that's a good thing. Yeah. yeah. He likes it here. Sounds when he, like when he walks in, he reaches for my back pocket. Sounds it. like you guys have a good connection, though. Yeah. We have our, you know, it's a relationship that's been long-standing. So we have our trouble. We have, you know, anybody who's been married for 10 years or more has got the, you know, they're like, God, not you again. <laughs> But, uh, no, I'm very lucky. I'm extremely lucky. She's been, she's always been, always been supportive. But she's also a bit of a risk taker too, being an artist, right? Um, yeah, I guess. Yeah, I, I mean, yeah. She I mean, she's carved out an occupation for herself so that she can do her art. Unfortunately, it's still not as much time as she would like, but, um, 
Yeah, I guess, I guess so. We don't have any savings, <laughs> you know. So, yeah, I mean, that in itself is a risk. We have a house, so we bought a house, paying off a house. Mm-hmm. We have a kid. He wears clothes. So how do you guys, well, how do you in particular, but how do you guys feel about that perpendiness? Like a lot of people want that security. They want to have their... We reti- both really want that. The retirement lockdown. We want that. You want that. Sure. We would love to have that. We also understand that we need to live in a certain way. So I need to do this and she needs to do what she's doing. And so there are compromises like that insecurity. But I think we would be happier, more relaxed individuals if we had more money. But you know, who can't say that? Right. We, but we have no money. <laughs> but it'd be nice if we had a little bit more money. <laughs> but I mean, that's 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 kind of a common a common theme. Like it's very interesting to see that you know you were you were someone who was paralyzed by fear at one point of your life. Literally, literally, yeah, yeah. And to see how you used experience to break through those fear barriers, mm-hmm. but not necessarily. On purpose. Right. Right? Yeah. So, right. Mm-hmm. I'm sure you, st- like you said, you still deal with anxiety. You still mm-hmm. deal with fear. But, um, but you choose a different kind of way of dealing with fear than a lot of people would. Like, mm-hmm. I think, I think when people are trying to make choices in their life or make changes in their life, you know, fear holds them back, right? Sure. It paralyzes them, not to the extent of being, you know, having agoraphobia. Mm-hmm. That's how you say it, right? Yeah, I think so. Yeah. Um, but it does hold them back. Like on Sunday, they'll have a plan to go out and and, uh, and and do something spectacular on Monday and then they wake up Monday morning and they're like, oh, I'm not feeling it today or yeah, whatever, right? Right, right. right. So like how do, how do you break through that kind of anxiety? If that, if that is such a... Um, a controlling factor in your life. How do you break through? How do you get through to the other side and just kind of like go out and do it? I think my brother's death has a lot to do with um, uh, doing it anyway. So there's a book that also that I read that has to do with that same sort of philosophy. What's it's called it's called Feel the Fear and Do It Anyway. Terrible title. Feel the Fear and Do It, do it anyway. anyway. You know who wrote it? But it, I remember reading it and going, oh, okay. So there's one person that understands how I'm feeling. That's great. That's awesome. Basically, the book, it says, do that thing that you're going to, you think is going to kill you. The, uh, the anxiety, the panic attack, palpitations, whatever. And do it anyway, because you're not going to die. So people who don't have anxiety would be like, of course you're not going to die. But for somebody like me, you you have that as a real thought. I'm dying. You know, I'm, this is a panic attack. And I'm, I'm going to die. I'm close to death. So my brother's death was like, it made me sit up and like, well, it doesn't really, I have these limitations that I put on myself from fear and anxiety. But I still have to ha- have a good life. I still need to have a good try to have a good life. 
So I'm going to do it anyway. I'm going to have a good life anyway. And a lot of it's going to suck. Like, still a lot of it sucks now, just because of who I am. But there's more good than ever. Because I just sort of put my head down and do it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And it hurts. And it's hard. You know, like I had a panic attack once cutting somebody's hair. I kept cutting their hair. You did a panic attack during the, mm. the process. Yeah. Why? Who knows? Who knows? Triggers can be anything and nothing. Uh, for some. And some people it's like, oh, I'm not walking across that bridge. Why? Because mm. I'll have a panic attack. Or going in that elevator or whatever it is. Right. Know? But you know, for me, it's always just, it's always been like, whoa, out of the blue. Holy shit. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So it was just out of the blue. I mean, there's probably a trigger and a thought or, um, you know, a phrase or something. I don't yeah. know. Like some weird hypnotic thing. But, uh, it's kind of like a roller coaster. You're locked in. Yeah, you're you're gonna. You, just this, gotta go for you the can't ride. stop it. So you might as well be like, okay, I need to. There's all this chatter and screaming in my head. Yeah. And the work is to have to cultivate that voice that says this will end. Just try to breathe and get through to the end of this thing, and this will end. Is that a coping skill you just learned on your own, or did you? No, I read about that. No, that's something that you know, therapy, years of therapy, and and reading books, and yeah, panic attack is just a panic attack. That's the end of the world, and it will end. I mean, there's all kinds of things that can happen to you. And you just gotta work towards it. It's great that you have that insight. Yeah, it's a lot of work. It's a lot of work, like cognitive behavior therapy (CBT). Yeah, it's self-talk, right? Yeah. So you recognize that you're having troubles and thoughts, wrong-headed thinking, and you go, well, hang on a second, and you talk to yourself, and you say, that's really not likely to happen. If you're me and you're having a catastrophic thought, mm-hmm. that's what are the chances of that really? What, really, what are the chances of that happening? And if it happened, what would be the worst thing that could happen? What's the worst that could happen? So that's that's part of the constant dialogue too I read a great article the other day about uh, it was about um, complaining is killing your happiness yeah. and the whole article uh, was about the science behind it mm-hmm. and uh, one of the first points was um, in our brain the synapses that that um, send the electrical signal back and forth when we have thoughts mm-hmm. um, they as we as we do things, they want to make things, they want to make it more efficient. Our brain wants to make it more efficient. So the synapses actually grow closer together to make that right. electrical yeah, easier. thing happen easier, right? So if you focus on negative thoughts, then those kind of charges will become easier and easier for you uh, to make. But the more you focus on positive things, those the things. same thing will happen. Right. So oftentimes when, when we try and do something or think about something, if we think about it enough, kind of like what you were saying about self-talk, you can do negative self-talk or right. you can do positive self-talk. Right. And you will. And the more you do one over the other, the, right. more, the easier it will right. become, right? That's Well, and the way it's been described to me is you create ruts. So your thinking goes down this path, the same path each time to the same destination in your mind, in your brain. 
And so you have to create a new path. And that's the same thing exactly what you're just saying. Right. It's just in a different way. Yeah. 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 So this barbershop is that. Like when people come to this barbershop and they sit down and they play music, it makes me want to cry because it's just, it's perfect. And I love having something that's perfect. I love having something that's just so right. Well, and I remember when I first came here for my first haircut with you, mm -hmm. uh, you talked to me about something uh, that you referred to as a third place. Right. So I was wondering if you can talk about your, like, was that an intentional thing? Oh, first explain what a third place is. So third place is, I, I, it was a podcast or I don't know what it was, but I heard somebody describing, a sociologist describing the third place. The third place was the way they described it was, first place is your home. Second place is your work, and you need to have a third place where you can go. And usually, it's out in the world somewhere. Although I guess it could be your garage or somewhere, you know. But that would be your home. But anyway, so I like the idea of a third place. So people come here, this being the third place, and having that freedom to just let everything else go while you're in that place. So it's a literal, physical place where it feels like you don't have the same cares you have when you're in those other two places. And I think that's important. So like the library, like maybe like the pool, maybe like a park that you go to all the time, you frequent. So the barbershop, so hence the guitars, the bar, the hats. It's a place where you can come and someone else has created a place where you also feel welcome. And it's interesting. You, know, you can let your other cares go for a while. So, yeah, I really like that that idea of the third place, and I think that's influenced how I feel about this place and what I want this place to be. Well, and as a barbershop, I've seen mostly men here, mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. um, and that third place has kind of been—I mean, traditionally it was a pub or it was a—it mm -hmm. was a barbershop or. I mean, especially when you when you watch Pub, certainly yeah yeah when you watch sometimes when you watch uh, shows uh, like in New York City or whatever the barbershop was obviously a place where people would go and kind of hang out yeah. and, and or talk. Cheers yeah Cheers is yeah that's as, third place yeah um or uh, or that local restaurant that Seinfeld used to go to right it's a third place for them to get out of wherever yeah. they are I've noticed like you have women coming in here too yeah and then thankfully uh, yeah. And then the one, the one day you even had um, the uh, the son of the Nepalese guy who opened the right. Himalayan grocery store. Mm -hmm. His son came in to play ukulele one day. Yeah. Right. So you have kids coming in here yep. too. Yeah. So it's a really kind of like friendly, open space. Yeah. And yep. did you have that kind of plan when you said, "I'm yes. going to be a barber. Uh, I'm going to open a barber shop. Yeah. This is what I'm going to do. Yeah. Was that?" Was that part of your kind of your concept? Yes. Yeah. It was part of my desire. Yeah. I mean, the concept just sort of evolved over time. Hats was like, oh, that'd be kind of funny. And I thought it'll be kind of interesting to have, I like hats. I wear a hat. Um, so I would, I want to put them in my shop. I want to sell them. I sell hats. Rarely. And also just acoustically, the hats will make it sound nice. And oh, guitars. I love guitars. And I love people who, sing and play so I want to encourage that so I'll put four guitars on the wall same with the bar but well, people don't just come here and play, play the guitars like 
while they're hanging out. You, you've had like concerts here and stuff too, right? No, people do come and play the guitars while they're hanging out. But they also, like you've also had concerts, yes. right? Yes, yeah, yeah. Yeah, I don't anymore because of my capacity, but um, people come, I'd say almost, like every two or three days, somebody will come in and play the guitar. Yeah. Immediately turn off the stereo. Yeah. Play. And are those better people, are they usually coming for a haircut or are they just no. going in to play the guitar? No. Some people, I get the odd person who like looks at the guitar and I say, you know, those are, you play the guitar. And I get the odd one who says, yeah, do you want to play a guitar? Oh, sure. So they, the stranger will take out one of the guitars and play it. It's the best. Wow. It's the, that, and that is what I wanted. That people being, it, I wanted this place to be easy for people. I want them to feel like, well, I don't play the guitar very well, but I'm going to play the guitar here because I feel like I can. And that, you know, there's no judgment. There's no, no pressure. No pressure. Yeah. You don't want to play the guitar? Go play the guitar. I have an amp for my electric guitar. It's right below the electric guitar. People are like, what? Like, yeah, man, play it. It's cool. So people play it. It's the best. They try hats on. People come in and try hats on all the time. Yeah. Just for fun. That's amazing. Have a beer. Have a beer. Well, and that's another thing that you've done too. Yeah. Are you the first yeah. barbershop in Ontario to, no. to be licensed? No, 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 no. There's a couple in Toronto. There's actually quite a few. Um, I know I was contacted by somebody in, um, I want to say Coburg, that uh, is having trouble with his municipality getting a license. But, um, no, there's a couple places in Toronto that I'm aware of. I'm sure there are others. I mean, there's a there's an esthetician here in town that has a license. It's from one. But, oh, really? Yeah, but I, I mean, I put this bar in because I want it to be that place. Yeah, and I had another chair. And I took the chair out because the bar went in. <laughs> yeah. And you find more and more people are coming in to... Yep. To... And I'm open late now, Thursdays and Fridays, so I'm in tonight. Yeah. So people come in, sit at the bar, and have drinks. And then they play the guitars, and sing. So it brings together all those all those things that yep. you love, right? Yeah, Getting yeah. To know people, yeah. serving people, yeah, and uh, music. and listening to their music. That live music just I just love that. Yeah. People put their heart and soul into that. You know, the whole like there's a history behind every song with that person who's playing it because they had to learn how to play guitar. And they had to learn how to play that song. They had to like that song. And then they got somebody else to play, like my friends Adam and Rain come in, and they she plays the ukulele, he plays the guitar. And they, they work on these things. They put effort into it. And it's such a beautiful thing to see. And they sound great together. Mm-hmm. <laughs> they sound really that helps. Yeah. I mean, the harmonies are like, whoa. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's so good. So good. There's nothing better than well, I'm really happy for you. Thanks. I'm really happy for me too. It still feels like, really? And it must permeate into other areas of your life, right? Like, like your family life. Yeah, I or, think so. Or like how, just how you, how you walk through life on a daily basis. Do you feel like having this satisfaction, this deep satisfaction here? How do you feel it affects the other parts of your life? You know, I think it, it's, it inoculates them with uh, 
the nice things that are happening here and the way it feels here. I, I'm still that anxious person though, mm -hmm. very much so, and that's a big struggle. So I'm hoping that over the years that the joy will sort of you know, take over <laughs> more. So yeah, I mean it's still early days too. It's been a year that I've had this place. Mm -hmm. uh, I'm still not making as much money as I'd like to. Still very much on the edge, you know. So I think in a year or two when things have settled out a bit more, that maybe I'll be at an even better place. But I'm really grateful for what this is now. What's happening here. Yeah. It's amazing. It feels like and you know, when when it was happening it, it just sort of so many things that needed to get done and needed to happen just sort of happened. It was like it was like they were meant to. It was really amazing. Yeah. Maybe I don't remember how hard it was, but it feels like it wasn't that hard. Well, it was a pretty hard journey up until today, wasn't it? Yeah. Yeah, has been. I mean it's it's all rewarding though. You don't you don't try something, you don't risk something. I'm kidding. Which kind of brings me to um to kind of our, the close to the end of our conversation, which is kind of um, asking you, well, do you ever run into people? Uh, people either you cut their hair or, you know, people who come in and, and, they, and they play guitar and they're amazing, but they don't believe in themselves. Or like, do you run into people um, who you see could have what they want, but they're just not going for it? Um, all the time. Yeah. And we have those, I have those conversations with people. So what do you say to them? It's different for everybody. Um, people have different levels of luck and fortune. I mean, sometimes it's just that. Uh, not to say that you don't have to put your energy into going in a certain direction. So I think I say that. I think I say, I say, Put your energies towards the thing that you want and take risks. It's maybe not great advice though. Maybe, I mean, I, and I also tell people don't follow your dream. This is not my dream. I like, I love this. Well, what is your it's dream? It's not my passion. I, I don't have a dream. I don't have a, I don't have a passion. I have a lot of little passions. Right. But I think if telling somebody follow your dream, follow your passion is a mistake. Why is that? Because it's often something that's, rarefied you know like I want to be a, a country music singer I want to be an actor I want to be I want to be big I want to be you know that and I, I think telling people to follow their dreams is dangerous I think you should tell people find something you like <laughs> and do that you know find something that you could do you could do on a daily basis and do that and you will be happy. I think you will be happier than finding that the passion, which is often an ideal, and doing that because it's there's so many other variables that you may not be able to overcome. Whereas doing something that you you like to do is maybe maybe it's a little less of an uphill battle. I don't, I don't know, but 
Like yeah. my passion was, and maybe it still is. I don't know. I don't think so, actually. But writing, writing, and but I don't, I don't do that. I'm happy not to do it. I'm happy doing this. This works for me too. This is something part of my personality that I found that works in like on a daily basis in the real world of paying the bills and and being happy enough. I don't need to be like thrilled and overjoyed every day. I need to be happy enough. And I am and I feel lucky. So yeah, when people come in and they have they have we have those conversations, I encourage them to to either have a new perspective on what they're doing. Have those conversations too. Look at it differently. Uh, you know, that's the conversation that you know around being grateful. Well, maybe I should be more grateful. I don't know. <laughs> but you also mentioned that you said you could be happier. Yeah. If certain things happen in your life, like for example, if you if you felt more secure with your financial standing sure. or things like that, right? Yeah. Um, or if you knew guaranteed that your son was going to keep breathing right through the night. Right. <laughs> right. Right. Yeah. So yeah. you could be happier. So mm -hmm. how do you find the balance between um, being happy enough, but also working towards being happier? I think you have to accept where you are. <laughs> you have to accept where you are and work within, work with that, you know? Uh, you get, I, I think too I mean it might sound cliche I don't know but I feel like if you live in Canada you won the lottery you live here I agree you won the lottery and I don't want to tell anybody that they should feel anything about anything but you should be grateful for that <laughs> you really you really it's safe for the majority of people. For the majority of people, yeah. And, you know, free healthcare and all that stuff. But, you know, think about the rest of the world. I can't imagine working, working in some of those It'd be so hard. But then it's, yeah, is it, is it all relative? I don't know. I don't know. I don't know. I think maybe it's not. Maybe it's just some places are just shit. And some places aren't. Or less shit. People, some people think this place is shit. And, I mean, I think you really check your head if that's the case. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I you know, I have those conversations with people. I'm in this job. I don't like it. What do I do? I don't know. Try to see, see your way through to a place where you feel comfortable. Whatever that means to you. I don't know. Maybe that's the thing. Maybe do, that's it. Do you feel like when... Like one thing that I kind of see in, in your path is like in, incremental steps towards a, an unknown destination, yeah. but something that's truer to who you are, uh, innately. Mm -hmm. Right. Yeah. That's kind of why like the, the symbol that I see in my head for right turn is actually a U-turn. Right. Because it's turning back inside of ourselves. Right. To kind of find ourselves again and find what what makes us happy enough right right in this time sure in this time and those things have changed for you over the years right yeah but 
what you were saying earlier about someone wanting to uh, follow their dreams and it, what you were describing kind of sounded like it was this big, huge thing that they wanted to achieve. Right, right, right. right. So they want to go from zero to hero. Right. Rather than taking incremental steps of things that make them happy enough now. Right. And maybe along that path, they'll go, oh, I don't need to get to that thing that I thought would be the pinnacle. I need to get, I'm here. I, I, I'm there. Oh, well, I'm happy enough. I'm right. good. Yeah. Working towards something is really important. But, you know, recognizing where you are now is really important too. Yeah. I don't know. It's complicated because my story is unique and your story is unique and we're all, we all have different ambition and we have different um, reasons for things we do. We have different perspectives on things. Like, I think I've never felt worthy of a lot of things. And so that's also why I am where I am now. Mm -hmm. um, so I never felt like I could be a doctor or a banker or so this wasn't worthy. Where some people are like, well, of course you can be that person. Of course you can do that. Of course you can do this. So because I have um, unlimited self-loathing, I, you know, I, I went in a certain path in a certain direction, and and that led me here. In a lot of ways, I mean, there are so many variables though that led me here. So many things had to happen to lead me here. So I don't know if it, it, I don't know if anybody's really qualified to give anybody like any real concrete advice about. How to find how to find themselves? Except, I don't know. Maybe just slow down. Maybe just slow down. And slow down and uh, listen. Be happy enough. Be happy enough with where you are too. Unless you know, living on the street and you really don't want that. Maybe not be happy with that. But I don't know. I see some people on the streets are really too. Some people have more. It's harder. Um, for some people, it's much harder. I mean, there's no average, right? So it's a hard, it's a hard question to answer because it's everybody is so, there's so many different reasons for being where they are. And Which is why are. it's an important question to ask, I think. Yeah, there's no universal answer, though. I think, and for me, the reason I'm here is. Multi-fold, so many reasons why why anybody's anywhere is a lot of luck. Like one of the conversations, many conversations I've had here with people is like, "Oh, I'm like, what do you do?" And they tell me, and I'm like, "Oh, that's a pretty highfalutin job. Did you go to school for that?" This has happened many, many times. No, no, didn't go to school for that. You didn't go to school for for that. No, how did you not go to school and have now you have this job? Oh, I, I met a guy. Talk to a guy. What do you mean? Like, what, what, what? Like, and this happened many times. Talked to a guy. He thought I could do the job. He called me. Sometimes it's like a year later. And now I do the job. Okay. <laughs> like, it's, it's just so mysterious in, in some ways. It's amazing. Yeah. And my path is so many turns. <laughs> so many, 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 many turns. And I look at other people like, you have two turns. You made two turns, and that's where you are now. And for me, it's like I made seven hundred and sixty-five turns, and that's where I am now. Yeah, you know. Yeah, and that worked for me. Luckily, I think there's a lot of luck, a lot of fortune, a lot of just fluke. Not and not 
to say that you don't have to work at stuff. You really, really, really do. And maybe I did and I didn't notice. I don't know. I don't know. Well, I think you opened yourself to experiences. That for sure. I really like people. It comes yeah. down to that. It comes down to hearing what people have to say about their lives. And then I somehow learned from that. Yeah. That's a big part of it. Yeah. And that's what I do for a living now. I listen to people talk about their lives. It's great. Everybody's fascinating. Every last person that comes in here is like hugely fascinating. Endlessly. Everyone's got a story. It's incredible. Which adds even more incredible value to what you do. Yeah. I guess so. Yeah. And then here there's, this is a metaphorical place too in that. People come in and they're transformed. I give them time. Can you give an example of when that's happened? I give them a haircut. And that's the transformation. That's the transformation. They are literally transformed. And it's like, you can be a different person if you put a mask on. It's funny how I went totally deep on that. And then you were just <laughs> yeah, like, like no, man. Haircut. <laughs> no man, the haircut. <laughs> it's such a simple transformation. But it's like but a it, switch. It makes a difference. It does. And Absolutely. maybe that's why some people get a haircut on a regular basis. Because mm. it's like, they need that. They need that transformation. They, they need that little kick each time, like that mm. change. Change it up. Change, keep changing it up. It's like wearing a mask. You know, you, you're, you allow yourself to be a different person, to allow you to do different things that you wouldn't normally do because you're wearing a mask. You have a haircut and you're like, oh, I'm different. I'm different now. I can do what I want to do because I found, you know, I'm, I'm somehow different and more able. It's like the people who give themselves a name. You know, I find that fascinating. You mean other than the name they were born, they yeah. were given at birth? Yeah, yeah. I find that fascinating. And those people all have a, a certain quality that's universal that I can't put my finger on. But yeah, they yeah, it's just this permanent transformation that they make because they gave themselves a name. Anyway, that's a whole other conversation. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Well, I think it's pretty good. I think we. Uh, covered a lot today yeah and, uh, yeah really uh there's a lot of gold in what you said today a lot of therapy <laughs> <laughs> kind of <laughs> kind of yeah but sure. uh, it's also like just getting to know each other too right yeah so yeah this was really fun i really yeah. enjoyed this so did i yeah because i don't i mean i kind of sort of have these conversations but they're a lot lighter yeah here so i mean doing it more in depth and on purpose it's like a two-hour haircut. Yeah. <laughs> With no haircutting. <laughs> there is definitely some transformation here. So I'm yeah. really happy. Yeah. Thanks so much for inviting me in. and uh, Thank you for coming here. Taking time. So glad I got to know you. Good. Yeah, me too. Awesome. Thank you so much for tuning in. I really hope you enjoyed this interview. It would really help me a lot if you would go to Apple Podcasts and leave a review or rating. If you've already done so, I can't express my gratitude enough. If you have any questions or comments about this episode, or just want to share something you gleaned from it, I'd love you to submit them through the contact page on my website, www.youandlewis.com. Also, if you want to be the first to know a new episode has been uploaded, sign up for notifications by submitting your email address. Thanks again and good luck on making your right turn.